WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina. This is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. What the River Knows is a passion project. After more than two decades of work, it's coming alive on a Wilmington stage for writer Alicia Inshiradu. Since the late 1990s, this fictionalized story of the city's coup d'etat has taken the form of a feature-length screenplay, a short film, and two previous attempts to bring the story to a live theater audience. The third time, more than 20 years after the first, seems to be the charm. What the River Knows opens on Thalian Hall's main stage on the anniversary of the 1898 white supremacist massacre. Under that same roof, 124 years earlier, Alfred Waddell delivered a speech promising to win the election at any cost, even if it meant, quote, choking the Cape Fear River with carcasses, end quote. Waddell was one of the architects of the coordinated attack, which forced duly elected black officials out of office at gunpoint, killed an unknown number of black citizens, and terrorized the black population so that many fled and never returned. Local journalist and historian Ben Steelman compares November 10, 1898, to a botched lobotomy performed on the port city. A reckoning of sorts has begun as those studying the coup discover descendants of both victims and perpetrators locally and around the United States. The new Hanover County Remembrance Project, spearheaded by genealogist Tim Pinnock, is one community undertaking. Third Person Project, created by John Jeremiah Sullivan and Joel Finzel, is another, an effort to find new information about the massacre in the form of old newspapers. As more people join the conversation and more and brighter lights shine on the coup, our understanding of the long-term impact deepens. Alicia Inshiradu is contributing her own work to this reckoning. Her journey has not been smooth or easy, but this filmmaker and writer was the founding president of the Black Arts Alliance, which ultimately became the North Carolina Black Film Festival. She is also a North Carolina native and longtime Wilmington resident, and she joins me now. Alicia Inshiradu, welcome to Coastline. Thank you, Rachel. That was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Do you remember the first time you heard about this coup d'etat that happened in Wilmington, North Carolina? Well, I think I, I remember hearing about the coup when Philip Gerard came to East Carolina University. I was a graduate student, and I was a literary uh, a journal assistant, research assistant, and he came to speak. And I'm pretty sure he spoke about the 1898 massacre. I'm pretty sure he did. It's just that I really don't recall hearing it there. So I ended up moving to Wilmington a couple of years later. I entered graduate school. The creative uh, writing program for graduate students was opening. And in January of 1997, uh, which is around the first month that I started, I went to see a movie, Rosewood, by the late John Singleton. Rosewood is a fictional drama about a similar massacre that happened in Rosewood, Florida in 1923. And after I saw that movie, I said, I, I think something like that happened here in Wilmington, North Carolina. 
I want to find out what happened here in my, 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 my backyard now, my hometown. And so I started researching 1898. And so maybe the first time you heard about it, there just wasn't a place for it to land? Is that why you think you don't remember in, it? In my sensibilities? Yes, yeah. I think so. Um, and you also grew up. In Kinston. Yes, I did. Not so far away. Right, still about an hour and a half from here. Eastern North Carolina. East, yes. Yeah. What was it like? What was Kinston like when you were growing up? Well, I lived there uh, from birth until I was about 14. I was entering 10th grade when my mother uh, transported us to North Jersey. And so that was the 50s, early 50s, mid 50s, late 50s, early 60s. And so at the time, we lived in a very segregated uh, community, but I did not realize that it was segregated. I, I, what I uh, knew was that there was a loving, very vibrant community. Uh, we lived near our teachers and our, our dentists and uh, other professional blacks. Uh, my mother was a blue-collar worker, and we lived in the projects, and they were uh, very nice uh, uh, projects, <laughs> very clean, very safe. We lived across the street from the Catholic school that my mother sent us to, and uh, when I entered high school, uh, we had to go to public school from that point on. I was in Catholic school until eighth grade, and then my mother moved us to uh, uh, High school, a uh, public high school, Atkin uh, High School, which was, of course, um, totally all black. That was 1963, 64. And I belonged to the chorus, the choral society. I took French. I took Spanish. Um, so this was a very good school. It was a very good school. And, and this is back during the time when legal segregation was in place. It was legally yes. segregated. It was legally segregated, and uh, the Catholic schools were segregated. Um, but I ended up having, uh, I think, a really very good uh, education. And you say you went to your own dentist, for instance, so African-American dentists within Ye the African-American yes. community. Yes, and thank goodness we did have an African-American dentist because we were not allowed to go to any white establishments. We had our own movie theater. Now, Ed, when you're a child in this environment, do you remember feeling not allowed? Or do you just remember feeling like you were in your own safe, loving, well-structured community? Yeah, yeah, yes, I, I did not feel that we were not allowed because there was no other. We had our own world. And we had our own lives. We had our own movie theaters. We had, a, we had our own. And so there were times when we would go downtown shopping and we'd, we would go into the department stores. Um, I didn't see any problems. I was young. And my, my mother, by the way, um, was Native American uh, and, and of white origin. However, she was brought up in Kinston with her uncle, who was a Native American, and came to Kinston after the war with his best friend, who was a black black man. And so he settled there in Kinston, in the black neighborhood, and my mother uh, went to live with him after her parents had passed by the time she was 12. She had been sent there, actually, since she was six, 
uh, and and then by twelve, by, by the time she was twelve, she was adopted by her uncle and his wife, and she could pass for white. She, I, I didn't realize that she could pass for white until we got moved to New Jersey. And so my mother lived black, she walked black, she talked black, she cooked black, she married black. And, and she, you said Native American, so she was a Waccamaw She was uh, from the Buckhead area of, of uh, Bladen County in, in Bolton. She belonged to, to that uh, tribe, the Wakamasuans. So she had several sisters, I think four sisters and a brother, who uh, did grow up down in Bolton. But she was the only one who was sent uh, to live in Kinston after the parents passed. So you're feeling, you're feeling loved. You're feeling a part of a community. All your needs are met. You said you grew up in the projects, but it was actually very nice. Yeah, it was wonderful. It's- we had the community centers where, where, where there were pools and lifeguards, and 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 we learned swimming. And there 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 were there was a hallway recreation center where we had dance classes, and uh, we made uh, uh, all kinds of uh, wonderful um, uh, things that you would make at camp. And so there was a kind of a camp every summer. We were close to schools. Um, and we walked to school. There was no busing. We walked to schools, to the schools with our friends. My older sisters um, I, I, I actually worked for the nuns across the street in the Catholic school. The nuns were all white, of course. I called in the pink people in one of my stories. Uh-huh. They were the only pink people around the nuns were. <laughs> That's the first line from that. Do you, do you remember at what point, you said this, it probably happened after your mother moved you to New Jersey. You look back at that segregation and think, oh, Okay, so it was a good experience for me, but it actually came from a not very loving place. In other words, white supremacy. Uh, absolutely. Uh, when my mom moved us uh, to North Jersey, we would go to the grocery store with her or to the material store. And that's when I realized that my mother looked different than her, her children, her black children, because the uh, servers or the cashiers so you guys together? Is that your mother? Or... And it, it indicated that we would not put your mother and the children together because the children were black and they, you know, we were visibly black and my mother looked very white. How did that feel? Well, it made me start looking at her. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my mom's almost white. <laughs> of course I know, you know, I knew what white people were and what black people were. Um, and it came to me that, wow, my mother looks white. And people are starting to point out some discrepancies here. And so I was going to 10th grade. I think I was basically just coming of age. And so uh, in 1968, about a year or so later, a couple of years later, I was going to 11th grade. It was April 1968. 
And we're going to pick up that story when we come back from this break. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration with playwright Alicia and Shiradu. After this short break, more on what the river knows, her fictionalized version of Wilmington's 1898 coup d'etat. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Alicia Inshiradu is a screenwriter and playwright. Her passion project, What the River Knows, has gone through several iterations for both stage and screen, and it's taken more than 20 years to arrive on the stage. It's a fictionalized take on Wilmington, North Carolina's 1898 coup d'etat. What the River Knows opens November 10th, 2022, at Thalian Hall on the 124th anniversary of the coup. Alicia and Shiradu, just before we went to break, you were explaining your kind of discovery, this evolving discovery that your mother looked different than her children and that she looked white in some settings and her children looked like they were African-American children, and that didn't match. And this was this was new for you. You were in New Jersey. This had never been an issue in Kinston, North Carolina. So in 1968, take us back to that point. Yes, and so I had been in uh, uh, Jersey and in uh, high school for a couple of years. And so in April 1968, the, we, we, were in, we were in class. And so when we heard that Martin Luther King had been assassinated. The entire school just spontaneously walked out. It was uh, predominantly 90, 99% black. However, there were two white students um, who attended, and they walked out with us. Without the teachers, we just instinctively knew that we had to just uh, leave a- 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 as a group. And, and to 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 just make a make a a statement by walking out, we did it very uh, uh, mannerly <laughs> for high school students. We weren't running or yelling or screaming. We just all walked out and stood outside in front of the the school. How did you feel? Well, uh, this was a coming of age for me. I do believe, because when I first got to Jersey back in 65, in 67 it was, I guess, around that time, um, for the first day of school, I decided that I didn't want to have pigtails the way that I had in Kinston, North Carolina, and, and a roll bang. And so I found out that there's something called curl fray in which it takes out uh, the waves in your hair and straightens your hair. And so I got a curl-free perm, and I colored my hair strawberry blonde. And for the first day of school, I walked into school as a strawberry blonde. And um, uh, by 68, I still had the straight hair. The colored hair was, was, was reddish, strawberry blonde. And after uh, Martin was assassinated, something just sort of clicked in my head. Uh, and that's, that, that's one thing that, that did. But what clicked is that, wow, 
I really want to embrace my blackness. Um, and so I got my first afro. <laughs> and I, I, let, I let the color grow out. Uh, actually, when I, a couple of years before that, when we first moved here, my younger sister and I had gone to a party. We got invited to a party. And um, we, we were trying to be cool and everything, smoke cigarettes, even though we didn't know how to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and uh, we were just wanted to sort of blend in and be cool. And I had a, a couple of people, both, both males and females, who would look at us and say, oh, you think you're all that. You're, 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 you think you're Miss 500. You, you, you know, you're a light bright. Those those terms, light bright and Miss 500, uh, uh, in, in the black community meant, oh, you're light skin, so you think you're better than us. And that was the first time that I had that experience. So you're starting to see now levels of uh, racialized sort of the caste system. Yeah, yes. And then when I really woke up after Martin was assassinated, I said, wow, I want to look the blackest that I can look. I want to be blacker than anybody else and let them know that I am. I don't care how light-skinned I am. And so that's when I, I grew my afro and the last time that I straightened my hair. Yeah. Yes. And so when you went to East Carolina for graduate school and you, you chose your major, multicultural literature? And creative writing, yes. Why multicultural literature? What were you looking for in that? Okay, I was I was actually a speech therapist, and I had my I was I was uh, asked to to go to grad school and get the licensing because I'd moved back to Kinston, and I did get on as a speech therapist, but I needed to get uh, the uh, uh, licensing in order to continue in that position, and so I did I did I, I actually got into the speech and language uh, uh, therapy program at ECU, but then I saw that they had a creative writing and an English literature um, uh, program. And I had been writing plays on my own, short stories. I was a, a performance poet. So I had been writing since my 20s, early 20s. And um, when I saw that they had a multicultural literature tract, as opposed to, well, there was uh, world literature, but then there was a multicultural literature tract, and then there was uh, uh, in English literature tract with other uh, specific uh, areas. And I saw multicultural, and I think, wow, that sounds great. And so, wow, did I have a great experience reading the wonderful literature that I had no idea existed. Uh, this was in uh, the early 90s, and people were still reading, and we were definitely reading in grad school, and um, the writing was, was awesome. What was the first piece you read by someone who was not a white man that you remember thinking, wow? This should be, this should just be part of the canon. It's probably Toni Morrison. Oh my gosh! So we we, we got to read a lot of Toni Morrison uh, uh, in 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 the nineties in at East Carolina University, and um, then there were these Native American writers, Louise Eldridge, I think that's how you Eldridge <laughs> you pronounce her name. I was very very impressed with her East Indian women writers. Oh, man, they really knew how to uh, cut to, 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 the, to the truth and to the bone uh, of personal and family relationships. Uh, 
and then to present it as a novel. It was very, the imagery, the language that they chose helped you to feel uh, the emotion yeah. and, and, and to get that the novel. And you actually, um, you're not really a short story writer now, but the first short story that you ever wrote wound up winning some kind of honor. What what happened there? Yeah, yeah. And so East Carolina had um, a student uh, literary magazine. And uh, before I, I came back home from New York City, I had been taking a master short story workshop uh, with a, a, a gentleman whose name I don't recall, but he worked, he worked for Knopf uh, Publishing. Right. And so we would meet in, uh, on the east side in this wonderful brownstone of one of the uh, workshop uh, uh, participants. She was a, tr- a translator uh, for the UN. And there were about maybe maybe 10 to 12 of us. And I remember uh, the uh, workshop leader saying, write your death. Write your death. And, and when we would come to the workshop with some of our work, we would start reading. And after about the second or third sentence, he would say, that's enough. You're not writing your death. And he wouldn't let us read it. And some of us did get to read, uh, uh, maybe after a few sessions, but um, what does that mean? Write your death. Yeah, yeah, write your death. Well, I ended up writing the story that uh, won me first place. It was called Chosen, and it was about uh, the nuns who lived across the street from us. As I said, they were the only pink people around. The nuns were, <laughs> and what happened is that they decided they they chose. Uh, me, the actual uh, uh, protagonist of the short story, uh, based on my upbringing, uh, I was the best reader in the combined first and second grade class. And so they chose me to give out diplomas to the graduating kindergarten class of 1957. And uh, so on the day of the graduation, they brought me over to their convent and let me enter their doors and they dressed me in a nun's habit, a very authentic nun's habit when I was, I was seven years old. And so they dressed me in the nun's habit, and they took a picture of me uh, in front of the Our Lady of Atonement, uh, which is the name of, this, of the school, and I still have that picture to this day <laughs> of, of me with my, uh, they said, keep your, 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 your hands crossed at the belt, and uh, I have a picture of that. So that story chosen was based on my experience of that. So I explained how um, my mother and my sisters got me prepared and how the nuns got me prepared to, to give out um, the... Um, and, and so I, I, I called my mother my peach, my peach mama. So there was a lot of color, color words in it. The, the, the bottom line of the story was that... Uh, that when I grew up, I wanted to be pink. Wow. You're listening to Coastline. Today we're meeting Alicia in Shiradu. Her play, What the River Knows, opens November 10th, 2022 at Thalian Hall, 124 years after Wilmington's coup d'etat. Alicia in Shiradu, 
you eventually made a short film called What the River Knows out of this script that is now a full-length play. And why don't we just listen to the opening of this to get a sense of it? They say hundred-year-old bones rest in the bosom of the Cape Fear River. Bones of ancestors who were never honored, of the dead who were never mourned, of black men who were never missed. <laughs> Estranged from his country, his hometown, his family, his past, Bailey dreamed of them when he slept and when he did not sleep. He dreamed of ancestors he never knew, he dreamed of dead cypress trees and dead black bodies floating on the Cape Fear River. It's very haunting. Wow. And it so is. <laughs> And this is probably different for you just hearing the audio. Yeah, the, that's pretty the, good. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, uh, sound effects. Wonderful. <laughs> So just tell us a little bit about the the construct here, because we have a few different eras happening that are... Yes, yes. I'm also amazed that, wow, we have not broken the integrity of the storyline for 24 years. So that's wonderful. That's that's been my challenge in terms of um, adapting the story for these different formats. And the the storyline is intact. That's wonderful. (laughs) I'm just happy to hear that. And so you've got something happened in 1898, but you've also got a 1998 part of the story. 100 years later. Yeah. So we have several timelines going on. The main timelines are 1898 from May, Decoration Day, Memorial Day, uh, 1898, to November 10th. And so we follow uh, the last six months of our main characters' lives from May to November, but we go back and forth from May through November to uh, 1998. So it opens in 1898 on the day of November 10th, and then we cut to 100 years later in 1998. Uh, I don't think I'll be giving away too much because this is in the uh, uh, the literature and and in the uh, 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 in the in the press that the first scene opens up with the two main characters dead mm-hmm. in two different locations of the city. The husband is in uh, a slave uh, an abandoned slave cemetery. The wife who's nine months pregnant, has run away with other women and and men and children from the city into a swamp. And she She, gives birth. Yes, she goes into labor and she gives birth to a baby who lives. Thank goodness. You call the play a murder mystery. Why is it a murder mystery? Because her husband, at the same time that she was delivering the baby, so we have a split stage, and that's going to be happening simultaneously. He has been um, run away from the riverfront where he was going to see about his business because of the tumultuous things that were happening that, that morning. 
and he witnessed his arch nemesis, a white realtor, who he had outbid uh, for a piece of land for back in August. He saw him and his posse uh, throwing dead black bodies into the river. He saw this? Yes, he witnessed it. So you have an informant? Yes. That, that, that's the genesis of, of, of this whole story and of the main character. I wanted to create an informant who actually saw this legend, because at this point, it is just a legend that, that blacks were thrown into the river. And Decoration Day, or Memorial, why is it called Decoration Day? Well, it was called Decoration Day up until I'm not quite sure when, but definitely through the end uh, uh, of uh, that century and into the 1900s, early 1900s. It was called Decoration Day, and this was the day that they uh, gave homage to the soldiers of the Civil War, the Union soldiers. And let's just listen to this second part of the last decoration day that gets set up in this clip. It would be Balaam and Kitty's last decoration day. November 10th, 1898. Most have fled and Ruth and Molly await me. Oh, our fair baby is coming soon. Black folk rarely spoke of November 10th, 1898, the worst day in Wilmington's history. When they did dare speak of it, it was behind closed doors and in hushed tones. Memories of that fateful day fell into a deep, restless slumber. An 1897 directory lists 40 magistrates, 13 policemen, 4 health inspectors, 3 aldermen, the Register of Deeds, the Collector of Customs, and one Balaam Futrell, the city's only sign painter as all-colored. Blacks were in the majority and thrived in 1898 Wilmington. Whites were forced to compete with a capable black contingent. And so here you've set up the fact that Wilmington was a thriving city with a majority black population and a thriving entrepreneurial and professional class. Yes. Just tell us who that the film's narrator is. Do you know off the top of your that head? That is Chuck Denson. He is a wonderful uh, voiceover actor, and he works for a local radio station. He does commercials for them. And isn't he wonderful? Yeah, what a voice. What a voice. That's Chuck Denson. He's well-known. His voice is well-known here around town. Makes sense. One of the things that he says is black people rarely spoke of November 10th, 1898. And when they did, it was in hushed tones. And this is something that is that seems to be one of the more uh, – this is not a fictionalized part of the narrative. Not is that so. something – in all your studies about 1898, you've encountered that phenomenon. Can you kind of, I guess when we come back from this break, we'll have you explain what that is and why it's been that way. You're listening to Coastline. My guest today is screenwriter and playwright Alicia Inshiridu. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Alicia and Shiradu started in the late 1990s writing a fictionalized version of Wilmington's bloody 1898 massacre. By 2001, she was planning to open what was then called the Dance of Redemption at the Community Arts Center in downtown Wilmington. But just before opening, her two lead actors abandoned the production. Years later, she hired Steve Vernon of Big Dog Productions to help her with the script and workshop the piece. Finally, What the River Knows was ready to open at Thalian Hall, but it was 2021, August, and COVID was a real threat. So the production was shut down, but apparently third time's the charm. 124 years after the coup, What the River Knows is set to open at Thalian Hall on November 10th, 2022. Alicia and Giridu, just before we went to break, I asked you, why does your narrator in the short film version of What the River Knows talk about black people didn't speak about November 10th, 1898, and when they did, it was in hushed tones? What is that dynamic about? Well, their ancestors were terrorized. And I call it domestic terrorism because we had a lot of that uh, during the time after slavery and into the early 1900s, all the way up to the 1960s. Uh, they were called riots, of course, um, but blacks were uh, were terrorized by groups of whites. At the time, the Democrats were the white supremacists, and they were part of the Ku Klux Klan that was just forming. The Republicans, though, um, blacks, black men had the right to vote at that time. And so they voted uh, Lincoln's party. And so they were Republicans. And just so happened that not only were blacks doing well professionally in the trades, both as white-collar workers and blue-collar workers, they were also becoming politically involved after slavery, uh, blacks just were so outwardly mobile. They had their freedom. And so they were going for it. And they did go for it, uh, despite um, the terrorism that, that, that was happening to them. And so uh, in, in Wilmington, there was an exodus of, of blacks. Those who did not, who were not uh, chased out at the threat of death left on their own. They did not want to stay. And so there was a, a, a brain drain, uh, I think, of, of the talented professional uh, people as well as, 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 as other blacks. And uh, the population at the time was over 51% black. The population was mostly black, okay? Oh, more than 51%. And by the 1900 census, it was down, 20%, it was down to about 20% or less. And now it's still down to about that. Now, this story that you tell in What the River Knows about Balaam Futrell and his wife Kitty, and, and those are the characters from yes. 1898, they're fictional, but his name. Tell us how you arrived at his name. Yes. Well, um, I learned to do research at ECU, and boy, did I get into researching 1898. And so I came across the H, uh, J.L. Hill 
business directory of 1897. And so that directory included all of the businesses in the Wilmington area. And there were several colored businesses, and their um, entries were marked with asterisks. And as uh, one of the lines go, to, to, denote, to, to denote, denote that they were that they were colored businesses, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of asterisks in that uh, book. And so I was looking uh, at uh, the ads. There was an ad for a bill poster. His name was Balaam Fuller, and he lived on Seventh Street. And he had a bill posting business and sign painting business, and he had an ad for it in the directory. And I looked around, and it was the only bill po- He was the only bill poster in town, and he was a black man. And I said, "Okay, then that sounds good." <laughs> and so that's how Balaam Futrell uh, was born. You told Jenny Callison, local journalist, uh, she was writing a piece about you in 2021 for Wilma Magazine. You said that you believe there needs to be some sort of purging to, quote, free us of a painful emotional legacy still gripping our souls. And I know that you see your play, What the River Knows, as as serving that end. But can you explain what you feel is stuck, lodged, that we need to purge as a community? Are there still conversations that we need to have? Is there deeper integration that still needs to happen? As someone who's lived in in different places, the New York City area, New Jersey, what do you see when you come here? Okay, then. Yes. And so, yes, I, I moved here in 90, 96, and so I, I, I really got to witness what's going on, what has been going on between blacks and whites in Wilmington. And um, the trust, the, the trust was never regained. And blacks uh, felt and still feel that they are not welcome in mainstream Wilmington that they're not welcome downtown, that they are not welcome in uh, events and, 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 and uh, the theater community, the theater in Athelian Hall and um, in other venues that uh, offer events. That didn't stop me. And I would go to these events, and I was usually the only black person, or maybe there were maybe one or other two black people at these events in the 90s and into the 2000s. And that's still going on in a lot of places. But I was excited because Wilmington was an artsy town. It was a theater community town. There there were so many talented people. There are the visual artists blow me away in this town. There's so much talent here. And so I really got involved because as soon as I came here, you know, I entered UNCW, and so I would find out all these things that were going on. I was the only black person, I think, in the program for the two years I was there. I don't think there was another person, but there maybe could be. So, <laughs> I've been one other black person in the program. I, I'm sure there are um, different people will have different feelings about what you just said about uh, people who are African American not feeling welcome in what over the last hundred years have been majority white spaces. Is there anything that white people can do to help bridge 
the divide, facilitate deeper integration, a feeling of welcoming. I mean, what are what do you think the white community is not doing that it could be doing? Well, the good news is that they are doing it now. I would say a large majority. They're, for some reason, they're, they've come on board. I think maybe since 2016 and 20, okay, on the last four years or so, they have uh, opened up and accepted their innate racism and the institutionalized racism that is America, and they're owning up to it, and they're standing with uh, blacks who, because of all of the modern-day lynchings that have been occurring with the police and black men and women, that blacks have now stood up since, uh, I think, when Trayvon Martin was, was, was killed. And, and there are whites who are standing right next to them. And I really am impressed with Wilmington. And I, I'm also grateful, and I'm happy to see it. Uh, uh, take the, the, the local YWCA. They're amazing. Their main, their main uh, goal is to erase racism. And yeah. they do all these wonderful programs uh, t- towards that. Yes, yes. So going back to what the river knows, I, I mentioned earlier that this has gone through a couple of incarnations in terms of live theatrical productions. Yes. You told me about the first time back in 2001 when it was called The Dance of Redemption, and you were opening at the Community Arts Center in downtown Wilmington, and then suddenly you lost two of your lead actors. What happened? Right. And so I had a cast and crew of 30 because it's, it's, a, it's a big place coming from a film. And uh, we were all ready, costumes were ready, stage was ready. And uh, for the last six weeks, we had been rehearsing. And our main character, he was excited, I think, about the part. Um, but he would come and he would not know his lines. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were trying to help him. And, you know, I said, we're going to go for it, though. We're going to go for it. And so he uh, came to, re- came to. it was a student dress rehearsal. It was on a Thursday. And we were going to open on Friday and Saturday in, in the Community Arts Center's uh, auditorium. And so he came right at the end. Everybody was ready and waiting for him. And um, he had become... A good friends and has started a relationship with his uh, a co co uh, 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 main character, who was a white female, and he of course was a black female, and so they, they they had gotten involved, and I think she was doing fine with her lines, but she was supporting him. So when he got there, he says, "I want you to just just cancel this." And I'm like, no, the audience is already there. The people are already in their costumes. The other 30 cast and crew are ready. I said, no, let's just go with it. I said, trust me. He said, no, 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 you got to cancel. I said, no, no, we're going to do this thing. And he walked away. And the girlfriend followed him. So walked down the street. What do you do? Oh, my God. So what I did was I called my good friend, Tim Kennedy, who was a major actor and theater person here in town. And he was putting on, he was having a rehearsal down the street. 
And a couple of my friends I, I knew were in that. I said, Tim, what am I going to do? I, I want to do something. He said, I'm going to send Dulcie and um, Boise over uh, uh, to you, and they're going to do that role for you. It's a student rehearsal. And so they will understand that they're, they're going to have a script, and they're just going to uh, go in, and they're going to take over and, and do this. So they came. Well, we did the first few scenes. We may have gotten to the intermission. I don't remember. And I, I, I said, at, at the end of a scene, I came out to the audience, and I explained to them what happened. I said, I'm going to end it here, but I'd like you guys to come back because we're going to do this. You're going to get to see Dance of Redemption. And now it's happening. Yeah. They, they, they did come back, you know. The audience, it was sold out because people wanted to know about 1898. Yeah. And so I took the role of... Uh, the main character who was a documentary filmmaker. And she had been going around town giving um, lectures about 1898. And so uh, uh, Dan Brawley, my good friend Dan Brawley, we actually been friends since we taught together at Dreams, when Dreams was on 6th Street. Founder and of we were, Kukalora's yeah, Film Festival. Yes, 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 D Dan. And um, he had made these awesome slides of... Uh, newspapers, old newspapers from 1898, uh, photographs of uh, uh, historical figures, and it was amazing. He found this information in the North Carolina room, and he made the slides. So I presented the slides, and I gave the uh, 1898 historical information to the audience. I brought in my drum, my drum corps, because I'm a drummer, you know, and I brought them in to, to be behind me, and they would accent, you know, the different points. And then I had brought in my caterer, and I, I allowed everybody to, to have a cast party with us afterward, afterwards. So that was what they saw, You've <laughs> because they didn't know what to expect. <laughs> <laughs> You've been through so much in, with, with this particular play, this story that has undergone a couple of name changes. And here you are now. We identified it as a passion project for you at the very beginning of this discussion. But why do you think you have been able to stick with it, and, and what lessons have you learned? Well, I, you know, I really, you know, I've I, I thought about that, and I, I, I think that I was supposed to come here and do this. I really hadn't planned on choosing 1898 as my master's thesis. I was going to do something else before I came here, because I was in grad school at ECU for two years. And when it was time to do my thesis, I, I was going to do something like, uh, how has integration affected uh, blacks and whites in the city of Kinston, North Carolina? This was a study you were going to do. This was undertake. a study that I was, I was going to do. And then when I heard the graduate creative writing program was, was opening up, I said, I'm going to do it. But by the end of my two years, I really didn't know what I was going to do, but I had seen Rosewood. And so I was developing that. However, my professors and, and my thesis director said, we want you to do your story. We want Because I was in the creative nonfiction section. They had promised me that maybe a screenplay would be accepted, that they would have the faculty uh, in, in order for me to defend a screenplay. And I did learn how to do that uh, with Stanley Colbert, who, who is, uh, has sent, since passed, but he was a Hollywood a director and producer. And he came and spent time as a guest professor at UNCW and taught me how to write a screenplay in nine months. 
And so um, my professors, though, wanted me to write creative nonfiction. They wanted me to tell my story. And I had some wonderful creative nonfiction uh, uh, professors. And um, I... It just something about something this. About 1898, just yes. Embedded itself inside it did, of you. It did, it did. I mean, when I saw that film, I could not get it out of my head. And that is this edition of Coastline. Alicia Inshiradu, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Rachel. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you you very much. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline hosted by, or just send an email to coastline at whqr.org. You can find the episode at whqr.org org or wherever you like to get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline.